0: listening to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly show featuring reporting and interviews on local news, music, and culture. I'm News Director Kyle Mackey. Just a friendly reminder before we get started that Jackson Unpacked is now available as a podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Please subscribe today and help support Jackson's only nonprofit newsroom. Coming up on today's show, we hear from a school superintendent on the Wind River Indian Reservation about how the legacy of federal Indian boarding schools continues to affect Indigenous students today.
1: The boarding school legacy is uh, kind of an embarrassment to the United States, I would say.
0: Plus, as Pride Month wraps up this week, two LGBTQ members of Jackson's Latino community share their stories with KHOL Spanish-language reporter Alicia Unger.
2: They're not here to harm anybody. They're just here to live a life like the rest of us.
0: But first, we're excited to air the first story of a new Rocky Mountain Community Radio reporting collaboration on affordable housing today. This project is funded by the Solutions Journalism Network, and we'll be bringing you stories on housing from across the Mountain West throughout the summer and fall. KHOL's own Will Walkie kicks things off by reporting on one way several town governments, including Jackson, are trying to help local workers purchase homes by offering down payment assistance.
3: Charlotte DePrisco is an elementary school counselor who grew up in Jackson. At 34, she and her fiancé are looking to buy a home of their own and potentially start a family. But over the past six months they've been looking, they haven't been able to find anything they can afford.
2: We've looked at
0: Condos that are nine hundred grand, and they're two bedroom, one bath, and they're they need work, and that's just not feasible for us.
3: The average sale price of a single family home in Jackson Hole was about four point three million dollars in the first quarter of twenty twenty one, according to a recent market report. Katie Brady has been working in Jackson real estate for more than a decade, and she says the local demand for houses has skyrocketed since the second half of twenty twenty.
0: Things are moving extremely fast, especially in the sub-1 million market. Properties are getting half dozen to a dozen offers within the first day or so. And and a lot of that has to do with the limited inventory.
3: Brady says there's only a handful of properties under $1 million available in Jackson at any given time. But that's still way too expensive for the majority of area residents, including DePrisco. She's also been looking for options through the Teton County Affordable Housing Department, but that hasn't worked out either.
0: We make too much money for an affordable housing unit, but we can't afford a free market. So we're stuck in this limbo, this like gray area.
3: Educators, police officers, and even doctors are struggling to make a life for themselves in Jackson. That's where April Norton comes in.
0: We've seen households that could afford a three dollars or four dollars or $5,000 monthly payment they don't have $100,000 sitting around, and that's been a real barrier for them.
3: Norton is the first director of Teton County's Affordable Housing Department. This year, she helped launch a preservation program that helps local workers pay a higher down payment on their home so that they can get a more reasonable mortgage. The pilot grants up to $150,000 for every family accepted into the program.
0: It seems like a win-win for the the folks who want to stay here and live here and own here.
3: In return for the assistance, Teton County puts a cap on the appreciation value of the home once it's sold, making sure it remains affordable over time. It also establishes a permanent restriction on the property. Whoever lives there must make the majority of their income in Jackson Hole.
0: The point of that is just to make sure that we're not getting what we love to call modem cowboys coming in and applying for and getting workforce homes. And um, We really want to provide housing for people who need to be here to do their jobs.
3: Norton says another benefit is that it helps protect existing housing stock from being redeveloped into mansions. That was part of the inspiration behind the model that Jackson's program is based on in Vail, Colorado. We've come to grips, at at least a long time ago, that we're not going to build our way out of this problem. So we we sought to come up with a program that, that had a focus
4: on protecting and preserving some of those existing dwelling units in the town of Vail.
3: George Ruther is housing director in Vail. And he helped start a program called Vail Indeed in 2017. Jackson's effort isn't exactly the same, but the general outcome is. And in Vail, it's been really successful. We spent, like I said, about $11 million on 170 deed restrictions. And we've provided housing for 350, 360 individuals. Other resort communities from Breckenridge, Colorado, to lakeside towns in Michigan have also adopted similar programs. And some early evidence seems to indicate that they're working. Two years after Vale Indeed began, an economic study found that the town's investment in housing yielded a 5% return for local taxpayers.
4: It's no different than roads, bridges,
3: schools, fire departments, etc. Meaning without housing for our our year-round residents and our workforce fail isn't a resort community. Jackson has not yet seen that success. Just 3 families have used the down payment assistance program thus far. DePrisco Prisco applied and was accepted into it, but she says that 150,000 in help just wasn't enough.
0: I feel like if someone was listening to this that didn't live here and didn't know what it was like, they'd be like, "Are you serious?" But like it barely made a dent. <laughs> and like that's so sad.
3: So, the young couple is going another route, building a small guest house on a property owned by DePrisco's family. Norton, the Teton County housing director, says it's really hard for her department to compete with out-of-towners with cash. That's why she'd like to have more resources akin to Colorado, a higher tax state. Norton does still have about $500,000 at her disposal to help get Jackson Hole's down payment assistance program off the ground. She says it'll just take time. For KHOL News and Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Will Walkie. the recent discoveries of two mass graves containing the remains of hundreds of indigenous children in Canada has disturbed both our northern neighbor and the U.S. Interior Secretary Deb Holland also announced the launch of a new effort last week to investigate the loss of human life and lasting impact of former federal Indian boarding schools, which aimed to strip indigenous children of their native languages and culture. KHOL's Kyle Mackey discussed the generational trauma inflicted by the schools with Superintendent Frank NoRunner of St. Stephen's Indian School, a former boarding school located on Wyoming's Wind River Indian
1: Reservation.
0: Superintendent Frank NoRunner, thank you so much for joining us today on KHOL.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: Can you tell us a bit about the St. Stephen's Indian School on the Wind River Reservation?
1: Well, St. Stephen's Indian School is a BIE, tribally controlled grant school. And it works with both the Northern Arapaho tribe and the Eastern Shoshone tribe rotating every other year. And we have currently serve about anywhere from 250 to 260 kids, all tribally enrolled kids. It's about 99% Native American. And um, we have a staff of over 70 people to support the children that come to our school.
0: And can you tell us about the history of the school there? I understand that the school was originally founded by a Jesuit priest from Buffalo, New York. Which, funny enough, I actually moved out here from Buffalo, New York, and um, I believe it was a boarding school until the late 1930s.
1: Yes, so it was a. Uh, it was founded in 1889, so the school has a rich tradition and history from that long, long period. So it's been here since 1889, um, and it was a boarding school. And um, so they finally became a high. I think they got their high school in uh, the fifties or sixties, I believe. And um, in 1975, the mission finally gave the the school back to the tribe.
0: Obviously, this is something that is hugely important and um, a, a lasting legacy among you know indigenous communities. This legacy of boarding schools, but for many of our non-indigenous listeners who might not be so familiar. Can you tell us a bit about that and what the purpose, well, you know, and the, the function of these schools was?
1: I'll just tell you a personal experience first. I'll start off with that. I was raised by my late grandmother and also my late great uncle. My grandma raised me because my parents were too young when uh, when I was um, born. So my grandma uh, raised me from a little boy. As a little kid on Saturday mornings. We would um, wake up, you know, to the smell of breakfast and you'd wake up to hear them speaking our Blackfeet language. And, you know, sometimes as a kid, you lay there, you're half asleep, and you can still hear them talking their native language. You don't understand it, but you know, it's, it's a part of who we are. And then, uh, but once those kids would get up, there was just three of us that lived with my grandma, me and my, my sister and my brother. Once we would get up, uh, they would stop, and they would just start talking English. And so when I got older, I finally asked my grandmother, I'm like, how come you guys never teach us your language? And that old man that lived with us, and also my grandpa, they instructed their kids not to teach them our Blackfeet language and culture because of what happened in the boarding schools to them with their experiences. So they didn't want what they, the trauma that they they experienced in that boarding school, I mean, basically trained them, I would like to say, or put fear in them that they would not want us to learn that because we were still going to schools in the eighties. And I think at that time, uh, some of the teachers, still, I mean, the principal still had a paddle, uh, in some of, in some of those schools. And, um, so they just didn't want us to do that. So they never, they never taught us that. And so I grew up not knowing my language and not knowing a lot of my culture. And, um, as a, 40 year old man I'm finally taking interest in interest in it and I'm trying to learn much indigenous methodologies as I can about not only my culture but also the native culture in general so that's what um that's what I'm I'm trying to do right now.
0: Okay so you know sadly we're speaking today because over the last several weeks there have been these horrendous discoveries of Huge unmarked mass graves of Indian children on the site of former residential schools in two different Canadian provinces, and then there's also been this commitment by Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland. I wonder, as you know, as a Native educator and superintendent, what it's been like seeing this news, and you know how you're moving forward, um, you know, with this with this new commitment from the U.S. government, at least.
1: Well, you know, being a doctoral student. There's a big debate going on in the United States right now about critical race theory. And uh, one of the critical race theories that I'm currently uh, looking at studying in my dissertation is tribal critical race theory. And that's what looks at these injustices that happened in the past to the minority people. Um, I don't think it can be forgotten. I think it should be taught. I, I don't think it should be looked. You know, I've heard professors and also other Native American leaders, um, such as um, Denise Juno, who's a well-respected American Indian leader, basically say that uh, we should, that historical trauma happened and we as Native people should try to move past it, move forward. But I think before we can do that, I think that healing needs to take place and just the understanding of our history of what happened to our indigenous peoples, because like the boarding school trauma really affected my life. And I really wish that I could uh, be a fluent Blackfeet speaker today.
0: I understand that at one point there were four boarding schools operating on the Wind River Indian Reservation. So I wonder from your perspective, what the legacy is there locally among, you know, the Northern northern Arapaho and Eastern Shoshone tribes that live there. And, you know, this impacts your your students, I'm sure, you know, down through the generations.
1: Yes, it does. It's, it's basically a generational trauma that's been passed down. And a lot of the ills are, today that we see on the reservation are passed down through all that generational trauma. Um, you know, the boarding school, legacy is uh, kind of a embarrassment to the United States. I would say, you know, kids were just taken from their families and uh, like my, my mom, my grandmother, I call her mom, sorry, but my grandmother, she uh, was taken from the Blackfeet reservation and she was moved eight hours away. And that's in the early thirties, you know, back then people didn't have cars. Um, so it was hard to see their kids and uh it was really sad that she was taken away from her parents and while she was in the boarding schools you know her mother died so she never really got to learn I mean know her mother growing up so there's just a lot of a lot of different stories from different people that um I think needs to be heard or just needs to be told I think that's one way to heal stuff is just to uh, talk about it and uh And find out a way how we can heal it so we can help our future generations learn from our past mistakes and move on and make a better world for our Indigenous children. And not only Indigenous children, but for every children in the U.S.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time today, Uh, Superintendent Frank Nouraner. We really appreciate you joining us today on KHOL.
1: Thank you. Uh, I I was happy to be here.
3: You can also find an extended version of that conversation on our website, 891KHOL.org.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked on KHOL. I'm News Director Kyle Mackey, and this is our weekly show featuring reporting and interviews on local and regional news, music, and culture. Jackson Unpacked airs Wednesdays at 7.30 a.m. and Fridays and Sundays at 12.30 p.m. You can also now listen and subscribe to the show as a podcast on your favorite podcast app. Coming up next, coming out as LGBTQ can be difficult for people of all ethnicities and backgrounds, especially in a conservative state like Wyoming. But some local queer Latinos say they face extra challenges in a culture in which both the Catholic Church and masculinity loom large. We'll first hear an interview with KHOL Spanish language correspondent Alicia Unger about her reporting this Pride Month, followed by her full story in Spanish.
3: So tell me about your most recent story, which is timely because it's been recently Pride Month and there's been a lot of talk about the LGBTQ community here in Jackson.
2: Correct. And it is surprisingly um, refreshing to see that this small group of people are trying to make a difference. They are very brave and strong in a positive way. They are trying to come out of the shadows and let the people know that they're not here to harm anybody. They're just here to live a life like the rest of us.
3: Can you tell me a little bit about specifically your reporting on the LGBTQ community among Latinos here in Jackson?
2: Yes, I was able to interview two people uh, in this story. One of them is Odalis Avila, a young woman that has roots in Mexico. Her parents are from Guerrero. And Jair Sanchez, who was brought here since he was three years old uh, from Tlaxcala. And they both have something in common, which is that they belong to the community of the LBGTQ, but they also experience two completely different ways of living uh, the gay life. According to Avila, Jackson is more open to understand lesbians. They have a, a... Easiest past,
3: as, as opposed to other communities within the LGBTQ community, you mean?
2: No, she believes, she, she actually believes that it's in general. In general, lesbians have a, as, as she explained, it, it is easier to be acceptable by the community. Why is that? Because according to her, people like to understand, want to believe that they're confused, that they're going to a phase. They don't have to deal with machism as men. Being gay is a lot more complex, more dangerous. Therefore, it's difficult for them to come up out of the closet.
3: Can you talk a little bit about what machismo is, which is a really important element of the Latino community here, and and how that relates to your story?
2: Well, I would like to say that machismo is a cultural way of living uh you pass it through generation where men cannot show emotions whatsoever men has to be strong men has to be the one who provides men is the one who can only love women as many as he (laughs) wants unfortunately but um and at no point whatsoever can show that they're uh, sensitive. Men don't cry. That's, you know, very powerful statement that machism makes constantly. And when you grow up, like, listening to this, what Sanchez was explaining me, is very confused if you are gay because you're not only as a heterosexual cannot show your emotion. But being homosexual is even worse.
3: And of course, this story is actually, we were just talking about the different barriers people face, but it's actually a really positive story. And you talk a little bit about how your two characters are really grateful. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What are, what are your characters grateful for?
2: They're grateful that there is a community that is uh, standing up for everybody else. There are a few people in that community here in town that are standing up for everybody else. So because they're doing that, people like Avila and Sanchez are feeling stronger. They are feeling that they're not alone.
3: Well, thank you, Alicia. Are there is there anything else that you'd like to talk about that you think I'm missing here?
2: Well, that the Latin community, especially from the LGBTQ, they're facing more obstacles and discrimination. Discrimination because they are immigrants, discrimination because they are Latin, speak different language, discrimination because they are gay. So they have a lot to cope. And um, the only thing that they're asking is respect.
3: Well, thank you, Alicia. We'll leave it at that. And we'll now take the listener to your story in Spanish. Thank Thank you very much.
2: Thank you. KHOL Noticias en Español. Los saluda Alicia Anger. Las montañas de los Titons se vistieron de arcoíris este junio, conmemorando el mes del orgullo gay. Las banderas multicolores ondeaban por algunas partes de la ciudad. Calcomanías de autos o prendedores de ropa los portaban felices quienes pertenecen o apoyan a la comunidad LGBTQ comunidad a la que pertenecen Odalis Ávila y Jair Sánchez, dos jóvenes de raíces mexicanas quienes han vivido en Jackson por más de 15 años. Ambos forman parte del 3.3% de la población gay que reside en el estado de Wyoming. Esto de acuerdo al estudio demográfico realizado en el 2019 por UCLA y la Escuela de Leyes Instituto Williams. Cifras que para Ávila aún son muy pequeñas. Me
4: gusta pensar gente gay hay mucho en todas partes solamente que no todos estamos dispuestos a gritar
2: Gritos que de acuerdo a Ávila se callan a pesar de que en el pueblo de Jackson existe una comunidad progresista la homosexualidad y el transgénero aún son un gran tabú especialmente entre hombres
4: Siento que le dan más espacio a las mujeres salir como lesbiana que a los hombres salir como gay. Y creo que eso es así en cualquier lado, porque tal vez las mujeres solamente están confundidas y les dan su espacio. Y creo que con un hombre ellos sufren más de acoso, especialmente cuando se trata de la orientación sexual.
2: Tabús con los que Sánchez reconoce ha tenido que lidiar la mayor parte de su vida.
4: Nosotros como latinos, especialmente cuando uno viene de un
2: Como de pueblos chicos. Pueblo chico, infierno grande, reza un dicho mexicano. Hay todavía mucho machismo. Ideas que según Ávila y Sánchez, a muchos los llena de miedo. Hay muchos factores que, que, te, que te confunden o que, que le puedes temer a lo que te van a lo que te pueden decir o cómo te pueden juzgar por, por ser tú mismo. Sobre todo cuando de la familia se trata.
4: Sabemos que otras personas que han salido igual del clóset, cómo les ha ido y nos entra ese pánico porque obvio son nuestros papás y no queremos que nunca nos dejen de querer.
2: Creándose en ellos una verdadera lucha interna. Antes
4: tenía yo mucho temor a eso, o sea, qué me puede pasar, entonces eso igual es, una batalla que tienes que pasar y que tienes que tratar de sobresalir. Es difícil al principio aceptar tus orientaciones sexuales, tus gustos. Como creces en una familia muy católica, dices, no, no creo que yo, pero creo que es mucho mejor eh, te sientes más libre y
2: más feliz. Pero según Sánchez, a veces vienen más problemas, entre estos el bullying y la discriminación por género. Si pasas por un a donde dices, sé que voy a tener más obstáculos por ser quien soy, pero prefiero ser Cierto, mi persona que estar por el resto de mi vida. Precisamente son esos temores que atraviesan la mayoría de la comunidad gay y transgénero que tanto Ávila como Sánchez se sienten más que agradecidos que desde el 2016 exista Jackson Hole Pride, un grupo de valientes hombres y mujeres que luchan por los derechos de la comunidad LBGTQ y que este año por primera vez celebraron el orgullo gay durante todo el mes de junio con diferentes eventos. Hacen mucho trabajo por tratar de mejorar la comunidad aquí en en Jackson o en Wyoming, que pues es un estado un poquito más, bueno, más
4: conservativo. Entonces es un orgullo saber que si hay una comunidad que, que sí quiere ser fuertes para que Mejoren y eduquen a más gente. Porque a veces excusamos a las personas de generaciones mayores de que ellos crecieron en otro mundo diferente y ellos fueron educados diferente, pero creo que a la vez basta de excusas y creo que todos podemos seguir aprendiendo.
2: Aprender y entender que la sexualidad no es una elección. Aprender que los miembros de la comunidad LBGTQ no se hacen, nacen antes mi chiquito me preguntaba,
4: pero no lo aceptaba. Estaba yo en rechazo, como que, no, eso no puede ser porque
2: eso no es normal o eso no es lo que debe, lo que deberías ser. Pero hay una clave que es lo más importante de la educación. Siempre va a haber alguien que no va a estar de acuerdo contigo. Claro. Pero lo importante y lo que uno espera es que, que tan solo haya respeto Respeto a la vida. Respeto al ser. Alicia Anger, KHOL. Noticias en Español.
0: That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strumbucket. Tune in for Jackson Unpacked every week, Wednesday mornings at 7.30 a.m. and Fridays and Sundays at 12.30 p.m. And remember to subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson.